0: The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency says it's ahead of schedule on its goal of more visibility into vulnerabilities on federal networks. CISA also expects more agencies to adopt its shared cyber services in the coming months. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has more. And what is CISA exactly saying here with respect to progress on visibility, Justin?
1: Yeah, CISA reports that 55 percent of federal agencies now automatically report into its Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation System, or CDM. That's up from 45 percent at the end of the first quarter of this fiscal 2023, And that beats the goal for the end of this year of at least half of all agencies reporting into, automatically reporting into CDM. This all came out in CISA's latest uh, update on its agency priority goal goal of strengthening federal cybersecurity. CDM is central to CISA's role in overseeing federal cybersecurity defenses. Agency CDM dashboards feed up into a federal dashboard that kind of shows CISA and the White House across-the-board progress on, you know, patching hardware and software and potential vulnerabilities on networks. So CISA says it's performing well against this measure, and both quarter one and quarter two results have been, quote, much higher than anticipated.
0: Yeah, so that means they are hoping the entire government will get on there. And does that look like this rate will continue?
1: Well, in a word, no. CISA also said in the same update they expect more stabilized progress through the remainder of fiscal 2023 on kind of this automated CDM reporting. They say factors include agency resourcing, prioritization, and leadership changes. All of those will create challenges for achieving what it calls comprehensive CDM coverage. And they actually put a number on it. CISA expects that it will be able to reach as high as about 85% of agencies doing this automatic reporting into CDM, but, quote, it may never approach 100%. So they've gotten pretty far so far, but they expect things to level off a little bit here as some agencies run into some of those resourcing challenges. Cybersecurity costs money at the end of the day, so there, there still could be issues there.
0: And of course, it's great to be on continuous diagnostics and mitigation, but what about the results? I mean, Is this program showing that dangerous vulnerabilities can actually be headed off or found before they can do any damage?
1: There is an interesting update on that at the June 22nd Cybersecurity Advisory Committee meeting from CISA Executive Assistant Director Eric Goldstein. The audio from that meeting was not great, so I won't play it on your program here. But essentially, Goldstein pointed to the recent vulnerabilities in the recent MoveIt file transfer system uh, ransomware attack, where this file transfer system had these zero-day vulnerabilities that were used to basically steal data from organizations across across the country, including some uh, federal agencies. But CISA officials have said the campaign did not result in any significant impacts to federal data or systems. And during that meeting I mentioned, Goldstein said, had this happened a couple of years ago, CISA probably would have been accepting spreadsheets from agencies on how they were doing and using this application and where it was and whether it was patched. Now they can log into the CDM dashboard and actually look at all the agencies in there to see where the application is, what version status it is, and whether or not it is patched. So that's one anecdote that CISA has shared to kind of show success with CDM so far.
0: Yeah, that idea of discovering or knowing about a hole or a vulnerability that pops up is one thing. And as you point out, the patching, the mitigation part, that's something else. And agencies have often been behind the eight ball when it comes to having the latest patches. And so what does CISA say is the status now? Are agencies keeping on top of these these patch needs?
1: Yeah, at that same advisory committee meeting, CISA's uh, Eric Goldstein said that agencies have made a lot of strides since the agency reached released binding operational directive on uh, known exploited vulnerabilities in late 2021. That directive essentially establishes a catalog of the most dangerous cyber vulnerabilities and requires agencies to patch them within specified timeframes. And Goldstein says they've now driven mitigation of millions of vulnerable instances of technology since that directive was put in place. At the same time, as you point out, there are still some challenges uh, in certain areas. For example, the Environmental Protection Agency's Inspector General recently released a report where it found more than 20,000 critical vulnerabilities on systems used by the EPA's Office of Air and Radiation. The EPA office said many of those monitoring systems that it uses are really old, and they're not updated by vendors who made them. Applying patches could break them or shut them down temporarily, but it says it's working to... Mitigate things where it can. That's kind of a classic example of where agencies are still using legacy systems and patching may not be as simple or as easy as it seems.
0: And what else about CISA? Where else are they seeing progress? What do they report otherwise?
1: Yeah, the other interesting thing in its latest quarterly update is shared services adoption is up. Uh, CISA offers a number of shared cybersecurity services like mobile application vetting as agencies use more iPhone and and smartphone applications they need to make sure they're secure. They offer a suite of shared cybersecurity services in general, like logging and things like that. And then there's the vulnerability disclosure policy platform. CISA saw uh, 120 distinct adoptions of those shared services across agencies by the end of quarter two. And CISA expects to see even more adoption in the coming two quarters to meet its annual target of 190 total adoptions across its shared services portfolio. So that's kind of a marker of how CISA, another marker of how CISA is kind of offering these shared cybersecurity resources across the federal civilian uh, agency networks.
0: And some of the big agencies and departments use those shared services, not just all the small fry and the small independent agencies, correct?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, some of these uh services are offered, uh, they're all free and and they're kind of offered on this basis that, you know, some of the smaller agencies could probably use some free services with their limited budgets, but then there's things like secure cloud business applications uh that CISA is just rolling out this year where all agencies use things like Microsoft Azure, even the big ones, and they have to follow these uh shared standards. So you're seeing some of the bigger agencies Adopt that Scuba, uh, Secure Cloud Business Application Service, as well.
0: All right, a deep dive on Scuba, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right, you're welcome, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And, David, thank you so much for joining me. Shane, it is
3: indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you.
2: It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of
3: a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so, the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring look and life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of look and life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls, reading those articles in look and life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace, man. Hmm.
2: From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go
3: back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it, would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite. Taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it
2: and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top
3: 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And...